0: and we're away. Australia, USA, Romania, Germany, Canada, Great Britain, a great charge down the 2,000 meters of Lake Bagnoles in the grand finale to the Olympic regatta. There's the Canadians. They too are a little disappointing in the heat. Their order should just before the Olympic regatta, fast starters, and they're not gonna give away easily either the Canadians who have led to the stage. Halfway, a thousand metres gone, a thousand metres to go, everything to be given, everything to be won. The medals, the last medals of the Olympic regatta at stake and 1.17 seconds covers the first three boats. Canada lead. The Canada's really pulled something out of the book here. They really were not looking very impressive in the opening heat. But my goodness, they've gone out fast and they've held on the whole way. They're coached by Mike Spracklin, Steve Redgrave's old coach and he's a very hard man. He'll have driven them off the start, told them exactly what they had to do and they have really gone out and led the whole way right off the blocks. The Romanians are coming up, the Canadians. The Romanians might just do this at the line. We'll get it. I think it was Canada on the far side, Romania nearest to us, and Germany the bronze. But what a very good race to bring down the curtain at Lake Bagnolis. Great Britain were sixth. This man, stroke of the Canadian eight that won the Olympic gold medal last year. He's moved to Sculling and he's been doing very well at it. Thank you very much. But well, it's Porter who leads the field now against some extraordinarily tough opposition. There's Langer in fourth place, uh, with Halupa just outside him. 34 there for Canada, for Derek Porter. Looking very strong, but he, you know you can see that there's a bit of inexperience in his sculling there. He rolls left and right a little bit, but he's very powerful and extremely competitive, and he's got the measure of his opponents at the moment. But Halupa is flying now. Got half a length now on Derek Porter. Porter must have lost it now. Porter had to pay for that early mistake. And it looks like Halupa moving away. Half a length, three quarters of a length. Fantastic finish from Halupa. Porter trying to stay with him, Halupa has the lead, Langer still trying to raise his game but he's got a length and a little bit more now. As Halupa tries to pull and push and go for the line, the Czech fans going really mad and Porter now beginning to fight back on Halupa and it's bow to bow, the Czech Republic at the top of your screen in lane 5 and Porter's come back, would you believe this, where has the Canadian found the strength? But Jalupa, did he go too early because Porter has found the extra at the end of the race and it's Canada's gold medal.
1: Welcome to The Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about riding
2: in South Africa. It brings people together, breaks Netflix. down barriers.
1: Right, my passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive for. There's crucial Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold, ultimate goal, Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to yet another awesome interview and episode of The Row Show. Uh, It's myself, Lawrence Britton, and with me, as always, Mr. Green. How are you doing,
2: Jake? How's it going, Lawrence? And hello to all the listeners out there. Today, we have another awesome episode coming out, and uh, today we are releasing Derek Porter. Um, He was a Canadian rower that represented Canada at the 1992 and 1996 Olympic Games, winning a gold in the 8th, 1992. And very interestingly, after that, he changed into the skull and he went on to win a silver medal in a one hell of a race in 1996. and For those of you that have been uh, listening to our podcast, you know that we 've just spoken to Zeno Muller. so there's some uh, bit of uh, you know there 's a bit of carryover into this discussion with Derek
1: yeah, and I think we um, we've really carrying on the theme of like scholars because we we 've done now we, we've really done a lot of scullers over the, the last uh, few episodes and we kind of went from, uh, you know, Emma Twig and Sunita uh, and Chettle to to like the new age of sculling and then we took it back with uh, Zeno. And now we kind of carry on that theme uh, going more into the skull, especially that 1996 um, Olympic race, which was absolutely uh, cracker and we spoke to Zeno won it took the gold uh, away from Derek uh, in 96 but now we'd see the other side of the coin and we hear uh, that race from from his perspective but also uh, we haven't really chatted to to someone who's meddled in the eight and the skull I mean that's like complete opposite ends of the spectrum and uh, really really cool to to get into that stuff on the eight as well you know and Canada has had really successful eights over the years and 1992 was one of the the big ones coached by Spracklin and then obviously again in 2008 again coached by Spracklin so there's a lot of similarities uh, especially between that episode and uh, the Jake Vetzel episode so it's really really cool to to just get a new take on on kind of topics that we've we've brushed over in the past um what do you think Jake?
2: Yeah I think um you know I really like you said, there, Derek is really, I don't know how many people have done it, but there are really few people that have been able to master uh, two different blo- boat classes so well and win Olympic medals in literally the skull and the eight, which are, you know, two, uh, are blue ribbon events in the sport. I think that really goes to show the skill and uh, the ability of Derek as a, a rower, and probably one of the best rows that's ever been in the sport.
1: And back to back because, you know, he raced 1992 Olympic champion in the eight. And then into the Skull 1993 through that season, basically learning uh, how to Skull. He said he hadn't done much Skulling before that and then world champion in 1993 in the Skull. So a really quick turnaround. And I mean, you could hear in the commentary there in the beginning of the episode, the commentators couldn't even believe that he uh, was even able to to win the race, especially after, um, after just coming into the Skull in his first year. So yeah, I think uh, a really, really interesting uh, athletes and i mean obviously physically on another level and but being able to to adapt and technically change was uh, was also a huge strength of his a really nice guy and a really cool chat and i think uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this episode um, just some housekeeping before we get going uh, just remember to, to share the show, uh, tell your friends about it keep us uh, keep us growing uh, we're really trying to put out episodes around every two weeks at the moment so I hope you guys are enjoying it and we got some some interviews in the bank that are really really good that will come out in the next few weeks so yeah, keep your eyes and ears open share it with your, your friends and yeah, support us however which way you can.
2: Yeah guys and then don't forget that we also have a PayPal page so if you would like to support us there you can find it through our soundcloud link and then also don't forget to go review the show too because that really helps with the algorithm algorithms and how uh how the, the internet gets our, our show out there so go go help us out there All uh, or any support and all support is, is really welcomed and appreciated
1: yeah, I think it pushes us up on the on the sports podcast and uh, when people are looking for sports then they then the our one will come up a bit sooner if there's more reviews and uh, and more likes and, and listens. So yeah, go give us a, a handout there and otherwise just enjoy the show and yeah, stay safe guys. Joy
2: how's it going guys and girls this is the Road show and this is jake green speaking and we have an awesome guest today we are talking to derek porter from canada we've got many legendary races to to get through how's it going derek good to have you on
3: thank you very much guys it's uh, awesome to be here thank you
2: yeah and uh i think straight off the bat uh let's let's definitely get into some of the good stuff uh the 1992 Olympic gold race in the eight. Now that is a huge one. And we are really excited to chat about that race. Um, You know, the, the race was a really, it was a super close one at the end. um, And it must've been an amazing experience to be a part of. Um, You know, especially considering that, you know, Germany had been, uh, you guys have come second to Germany, the last two world championships leading up to that race. And then, Getting to the Olympic final, you guys really took the race by the scruff of the neck, put yourselves in front and managed to have uh, managed to really uh, hang on at the end, uh, keeping Romania at bay. So chat to us a bit about that experience, what the race was like and, you know, um, give us give us some insight into one of the uh, such a legendary event.
3: Uh yeah, getting right back right into it here. Uh sure, that's yeah, kind of a defining race I guess of my uh part one of my career anyway in the 8. Um and yeah, as you said, we'd always been um second to Germany leading up to that race. So we were kind of considered underdogs in that sense, as in we probably weren't pretty good to win. Um but we also, I guess anything short of first or second would have been a total disaster too, right? So it was a, a fine margin in there. Um, so yeah, we basically beaten the Germans once out of the last two years of racing. I think they'd lost probably one race in the last, whatever, six, seven years, probably the German eight was super strong. So, uh, they were going in favorites. Um, and we were just kind of fed up with coming second to them all the time at the 91 worlds and, uh, 90 worlds as well second second um so we shifted our race plan a little bit we were coached by mike spracklin who's um i guess most people know who he is probably but uh legendary coach of great britain and then he moved to canada and coached us for a while then down to the u.s and coached those guys and then um back to britain and back to canada so he's coached those three countries a lot and uh super respect for him as a coach love him anyway he was um of the mind after losing twice to Germany that we were going to have to do something a bit different uh, in the final in 92. So uh, the way I remember it anyway was we basically threw everything into the like first half of that race and we kind of treated it like a thousand meter sprint which is kind of an odd race plan but it was kind of nothing to lose or we just going to You know, burn the ships, as they say, and uh, put it all on the line. So we basically went out like that, and um, it unfolded a bit differently to most of our races in that we did get a good lead early on. And uh, we just tried to hold off the Germans who had always rode through us through the middle thousand. They had a crazy 20-stroke push through the middle of pretty much every race, and they were always able to pass us or get more distance on us if we weren't ahead of them already and they would hold on to the finish every time so we just thought we'd throw it all into the first half and uh we did that and then uh we managed to get ahead by a length by the thousand romanians were right there too in the video and uh, we just hung on yeah so the first thousand was tough and it's one of those races you're just thinking oh man i can't wait till this finish line gets here because it, uh, it can't come soon enough because we were pretty much you know, almost <laughs> done in the thousand meter mark and then Romanians were coming on strong for the last uh, last portion of the race, and um, yeah, the Germans ended up third, and Romanians were second, which was a surprise. It was all a surprise, I guess. Us winning, Romania second, Germany third, but uh, it was a it was a barn burner race, no doubt about it.
1: So, oh man, that's so awesome, and and watching the race, and then now hearing you talk about it, it makes a lot of sense because. It looks like uh, obviously you guys were nervous of this this huge push from uh, from Germany because you guys you guys do a huge push and, and put yourself really right out there and and it looked like you're gonna take it comfortably and, and then really at the end of the race when Romania starts uh, ramping the rates up and coming right back at you it's, it looks really really close and I mean I'm sure you guys were hanging on and 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 waiting for that finish line couldn't come soon enough.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was 24, 100ths of a second by the end between us and Romania, and then another second back for Germany. And so, yeah, super. It was basically a photo finish. But interestingly, I think we were so far ahead at the midway point that I almost thought, you know, there's no way we can lose this lead no matter what. So definitely it's one of those things where all crews have sort of the same amount of fuel in the tank kind of thing. And it's a matter of when you expend it, and we expended it definitely in the first half of the race. So it was one of those hang on situations. And yeah, had the course been, you know, a few meters longer, you know, the outcome might have been a bit different, which is uh, crazy to think, but it is a 2000 meter race. And, uh, I guess I've been on both sides of those margins. Sometimes you lose, sometimes you win, but, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, a well-executed race plan, but it could well have easily gone the other way too. So, um, super happy. Obviously it went the way it did. And, um, it was great to finish uh, the career in the eight that way as well with the, with the boys. Yeah, and
2: uh, it's, it's interesting you hear, uh, to hear you talking about um, what, uh, you know, being so far up at the 8s at the 1,000-meter mark. And it actually, we've had conversations with guys that rode in the 8s uh, previously, and we always love talking about, you know, one of the, um, one of the defining tactics, it seems, about racing in the 8s, and that's about getting the boat speed up as fast as you can and then holding on to that speed because it takes so much longer getting the, the bigger boats um, at full pace. But then on the same time, you can really, you know, hold that momentum on an even kill. Whereas I'm sure you have the most um, accurate experience of this, but in the skull, it's completely different. Like it, it moves very quickly off the mark and it's very easy to change the speed in the skull compared to the eight. so I mean I'm interested to hear you talk about racing in the eight, getting a really fast start and putting yourselves, you know, in, in the race and then chat to us, chat to us a bit about the, you know, the contrast to racing in the skull where, you know, you can be, you can kind of be in any position and within, you know, a hundred, 200 meters, things can change drastically. Mm.
3: Yeah, totally. Uh, that's, uh, that's a big, yeah, big question. We could talk about that for a long time, probably. But uh, yeah, right. Yeah, the eight's, you know, a big, it's a big machine, right? You've got uh, eight moving parts and uh, the cox and a lot of weight. So getting it up and running is, is super important off the line. And yeah, those shifts happen much more slowly within a race, obviously, but they do happen, right? You can, you can get, it, you know, a length back. If you're, you're dying and other boats coming on strong, you know, it does happen. So I, I never felt like a lead was enough, right? You're always building that buffer. But generally, yeah, with a with single skull, it's even more so. It's like, okay, I've got three lengths open. <laughs> Is that enough? Like, you don't even know. Some guys can have just crazy <laughs> last 500 meters races. If you, if you don't have it to match, they can row up to you pretty quickly. So, yeah, definitely this shifts happened a lot faster. But, you know, they did get a length back in 92 and the 8, uh, you know, within the second thousand of the race. So, it does happen, but we had, like I said, poured a lot into that first half. So we definitely had a little less in the tank than they probably did for the second half of the race. But um, yeah, those shifts are for sure. But a lot of it, too, is the, the crew dynamics, right? If you've got eight guys or, or four guys or two guys or one, it's um, you've just got that fewer moving parts in the single or the or the pair or double uh, to, to work the synchrony, right? So I think the shifts are easier, the lifts are easier the calls are easier so um the smaller the boat is right whereas the eight if you're not all on board with the pushes from the coxswain or whatever the technical pushes or physical pushes legs for 10 whatever it may be uh, you know if you're not all on 100 that really dampens that effort and it's super expensive for the rest of the crew so i think that eight race we had in 92 was a full commitment from the whole crew and you really felt like each call we were just on it and it just, you know, the, the boat literally jumped for our power 10 or 10 for finishes or whatever. We had a few calls throughout the race and you could really feel all the guys just hundred percent committed. So which makes, I think those races even more special when you're with eight guys, you know, big boat, lots of guys, they all have to be pretty much on on the day, right? Especially the Olympic final where there's going to be a couple of crews are going to be having a hundred percent days. Not everyone will. Obviously it's a snapshot like anything, but, um, I think to have everyone focused and hundred percent committed to those lifts. And that felt like that in that race, just everyone was behind me a hundred percent. And I just knew I was being, I was being backed up a hundred percent by the boys with every push. and just felt like really, really, really strong.
1: Sure. That's cool. And yeah, it's so, um, so important to, to have that, that team vibe to, to, especially in the eight. And I mean, you say it's a snapshot, but that is basically what the Olympics is all about. It's about being the best on the day when it counts. And and I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, you guys got it so right that day. I want to go, you mentioned Spracklin and how um, awesome he was with you guys. And I mean, everyone knows who he is and what a legend he is. And I think his one of his signature um, tactics or, or, or coaching styles is about um, getting that eight up to speed and, and just holding a, a really ridiculous speed through the through the race um and maybe that was coming on uh for you guys when uh when you guys uh for the for the 92 olympics is, is that right
3: yeah for sure i mean he's um you know he's he's a master uh of i think psychology more than anything else too and you know how to get the most out of the individuals of the crew in a subtle way, you know, he's not a rah-rah kind of yell in your face kind of guy. He's very, you know, subdued in his tone, but very strong in his manner. And I think, you know, he commanded full respect uh, out of us for sure. And was able to kind of push our buttons appropriately too, which, you know, as you, I know you've talked to Jake Wetzel and a few other guys that have been exposed to him too. And you probably know a little bit about his, his ways, but, um, you know, he really knows how to get the most out of, out of his crews and, And, you know, he would play a few, like, just to give it some perspective back in that, 92 was the transition between the old blade style and the new hatchet style, which you guys always had just had hatchets, of course. But um, we had the old style spoons and then the hatchets came out around that same year. So we were kind of toying with which ones to use prior to that. We were pretty sure the hatchets were fast but at the olympic final literally we had both sets of blades on the dock at the olympics in 92 and we'd go out for a warm-up paddle like the day before the race with the old macon blade and then we'd switch to the hatchets for the next warm-up row and i think i think mike was kind of of the mind that partly it's gonna it's gonna mess with the other people thinking what's with the canadians they don't even know what blades are gonna use this is crazy on the 92 final and um but his contention which i think rightfully so was that there was extra you know extra load with the hatchets they're much more efficient this bigger surface area and they were kind of um, you know more resistance on the water essentially so when you switch to the hatchet from the old style blade it would adapt by either shortening up or you'd pull a little less hard just because it was harder to pull and so we'd switch back and forth to try and nip that in the bud and not have the body adapt to the change yet so we would literally row the make and go to the hatchets And we hopefully wouldn't adapt our style to the extra load. So we'd actually be pulling like we had a lighter blade, but we actually didn't. So crazy things like that. that I look back and I'm sure it was very purposeful in his mind, but uh, (laughs) mental and physical games, right?
1: Oh my word, that is, that is so cool. <laughs> There's so much cool stuff in there. Uh, I didn't realize that that was the the year that they they swapped from the Macons. So actually, I have rowed um, with some Macons because uh, when I started rowing at school, then they're like under 14s and 15s because I think the schools had so many Macon blades. Uh, they try to keep okay. the, yeah. the juniors on those blades to um, obviously just to, to try and not have these huge costs to schools to, to replace all the, all the oars. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, there's a big difference between them. So I could imagine the other countries really thinking you guys were crazy, um, still using the, the Macons, but obviously there was such a tactic just to, I really like that idea of using the Macons to make sure that you, you didn't adapt to the, to the heavier ore and you didn't slow down or, or change your, the row. You wanted that aggressive, um, aggressive drive through the water Um, that's that's really really cool and I mean Spracklin also is like played such a big role in um, in the 2008 Canadian 8 to win Um, I mean how do you think that is very similar the the rowing style between the two years or do you think it's changed quite a lot
3: uh, the actual style of rowing. I mean, yeah, I think people always talk about, you know, the Canadian, the layback and all that stuff. And, uh, we would look at the, the later on crews, the 2004, 2008 guys and think, uh, yeah, they looked like they were rowing differently, but I remember having this discussion with Mike years after the fact. And, uh, he was like, "No, no, you guys had the same. Uh, you guys laid back too." And he'd, he'd bring up some video from the archives, and <laughs> and it would be some video of us in pairs rowing at like a fourteen or sixteen stroke rate, some kind of crazy workout, you know, with low low and high power, low rate high power. And uh, he'd be like, "Look, look at you guys, and feel uh, like, well. We're." Rowing at a 14 or a 16, of course, we're going to row long. But anyway, I don't think we rode quite as uh, long at the finish as the guys later on. But um, definitely, he had the same philosophy of, of coaching, and they went through the same hell that we did, basically. Uh, only more so, I would imagine, because I know Mike Spracklin's always like, "Well, that worked well. Let's push it a little more next year and see if we can get a little faster, right?" So, whatever worked for him one year, the next, the next year's crew is going to pay even more, right, till like, til they all break. But uh, so I'm sure back in Britain they weren't training as hard as we were, and then the crews after us were training harder than we were too. So it's hard to believe, but uh, he's always pushing the envelope a little bit with some serious volume and uh, and high intensity workouts, which he's always you know he's always done and he's always had success with so you know why why change it right was his philosophy i think when i moved to the single i was a bit more like well i don't know if i can keep up that kind of volume of training and and get the best out of myself so i always like to kind of challenge things in my head to see if you know maybe that isn't the best way maybe with less training we'd actually be faster who knows we will never know but uh his formula worked obviously so i I don't question that at all yeah and
2: you know staying on staying on mike Spracklin, i mean you know for a lot of for a lot of people in the in the rowing community they know very well you know mike mike sprackling and his you know his rowing philosophy i'm sure a lot of the listeners out here um, as long along with uh lawrence and myself have have watched the the mike sprackling kind of documentary on thoughts about rowing and it's it's incredible to see you know um some like a, a in-depth documentary on the philosophy and really getting into the nitty-gritty training uh, behind behind the DD and one thing that stands out for me is one of the parts where he talks about motivation and you know talking about like athletes all have their breaking points and it's almost visceral hearing, hearing him talk about that i uh, just want to you know get into in, get into that training a little bit can you shed some light or some insight into you know the nitty gritty training that you, you you were doing in the build up to ninety two Olympics, you know, as part of the as part of the Canadian eight. Uh,
3: yeah, so I, I don't think I've actually seen that documentary. So I have to check that out. Um, oh yeah got to you've got to go watch that it's brilliant yeah okay i will um so yeah i mean yeah not having seen no reference to that particular video but uh in general broad strokes excuse the pun um mike was um you know we did a ton of training basically in in pairs which was sort of his thing small boat rowing so we would line up we didn't have a lot of talent depth in canada we never really do um so we had we had basically our eight guys and then maybe a spare pair that was interchangeable in the eight and then beyond that there wasn't too much right we could get a four together maybe after eight, but um it's not a ton of depth we would basically line up whatever athletes were there which might be um like six six or seven pairs kind of thing and a couple singles And every day was just a lineup session. We'd row down to point one in the lake at Elk Lake in Victoria, in the west west of Canada here. And every morning, meet at point one, which is the end of the lake. And we'd turn around, wait until he came in his launch. And then we'd just basically hammer each other to the ground every day. So very race format, but obviously low rate stuff. You know, all kind of 22 to 26 stroke rate, maybe 28 tops. And just doing a lot of like stair castle type things up 22, 24, 22, 24, but always, always, always full, full gas, full power. Um, and you're kind of racing your crewmates constantly. So it was a very competitive environment and uh, he nurtured that obviously on purpose to get the most out of each athlete. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's very grueling training, but you kind of get to know your your crewmates super well because you're racing against them constantly, and uh, strengths and weaknesses kind of come out during the four or five six pieces we're doing, whether it's like four times two k or six times two k, and then we'd switch pair partners occasionally. But for the most part, we'd kind of stay with partners that worked with us well, and then Mike might shift something to try and get something out of somebody else if they weren't quite gelling or. Wanted to work on some rhythm with some particular athlete. He might switch up uh, the the pairs a little bit in terms of the order. Um, But um, for the most part, we stayed to the same order. And then we drove Cox's fours occasionally. Not a lot. I always loved that boat. So I wish we did more of that. But uh, we'd split up the eight into two fours and train in that sometimes. But that was like more closer to race time when we're getting the rates up. But uh, So the vast majority, as I can remember anyway, of the training was... All done in pairs in this sort of hyper-competitive environment.
2: Yeah, and I, I I really like how you you're speaking about that because one of the things that resonated quite well in that uh, documentary it's it's a pity you haven't seen it but one of the, one of the things that resonated quite well was this this culture of almost um, of accountability amongst everyone in the team um, because, like you said, uh, it seems Canada doesn't doesn't quite have the depth that places like the USA and 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 uh, Great Britain do, and it's one thing I learned is that watching watching the the documentary, it was really well put through that everyone in the team is really accountable to the success of the boat, regardless of whether or not you're going to be in the in the in the final product. Like if someone doesn't make it to a training session, it really upsets the chances of success. Uh, chat to us a bit about that that culture <clears throat> and and what it's like maybe being in a team where the team environment is so strong, even though it's so competitive too. And how, how do you get that balance? Mm, uh,
3: Yeah. So thanks. I think a lot of that probably stemmed from the uh, 2004, 2008 era where they really had to do some deep soul searching. I'd say uh, we had to do some shallow soul searching coming from silver to gold, but they had to do some deep ones when they didn't have the result result they wanted in 2004. And uh, they really had to turn things around for the next quadrennial. So I get the impression, I was was actually reading um, uh, Adam Creek's, he wrote a book about his rowing and his uh, open water rowing across the Atlantic and whatnot, and uh, he was in the eight in those days, and um, he talks a little bit about that process, I think 2004, 2008, for those guys under Spracklin, and I think they had to really figure out, you know, what went wrong and what they need to do to correct this thing, because it was a bit of a, you know, I'd say a huge disappointment for them at that point going in um so i think a lot of that probably stems from the psychology and the accountability you're talking about stems a little bit from we've really got a you know gel as a group here and um, yeah sort of form a dynamic that was i don't think overly familiar to me in my experience in the eight the way they went about uh, very methodically and business-like almost in terms of the processes they followed and almost like, you know, they have mission statements. It was always run like a small corporation or business uh, from my understanding of it. Um, back in our day, it was a bit more just, uh, I don't know, just organically generated, I think. It was just a bunch of scrappy guys that we just... Came together at the right time, and Mike Spracklin was new to our program in Canada. We we're the first time he's he coached there ever. So you know, I think we were a bit more of a motley crew of guys. Some had almost retired, and there were a couple of guys like myself and Darren Barber who are sort of the younger of the of the crew. So we had this just small group of people to mold in a fairly quick manner. And we didn't really have a lot of direction in Canada at the time after the '88 games, which I wasn't part of, but. It wasn't a very successful campaign for Canada. Um, so, Mike was hired to kind of turn that around. And his vision was always just to, uh, yeah, we're going to have an eight. I don't care how many guys we have here. If we have eight guys, we're going to make that work. If we have 10, we'll make it work better. If it's 12, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of volume or a number of athletes, rather to choose from but he created that culture quite immediately and i think we were so desperate me as a newcomer not so much i guess in that sense but definitely the guys that rode in 88 and were basically going to retire uh they heard that mike was going to come to canada and they immediately like this could be our chance right to get back and uh, do what we want to do so it was this perfect blend of people coming together at the right time when mike came and, and he just created a culture that didn't exist in canada that i know of in the sense that um he was very focused on this is the boat we're going to do and we're going to do it to the best of our abilities is what we need very singular focused as a coach and then that just carried over to the athletes because he was you know uber confident in his methods and unwavering and everything he did very knowledgeable and you just we we had no we had no questions it's just like okay we're on board and he he always knew the answers to everything if uh we did have any questions of stuff he's just like a guru of all things rowing he lives eats and breathes rowing like that's pretty much all he lives for and, uh, and and his wife annie of course they are such a great couple but um you know when he's on his downtime he's he's creating programs or he's writing poems about rowing you know he's just a, an obsessed coach which is what it takes to be a great coach right he's like one of a few people i think are coaches in the world that are at that level where they literally just eat and breathe it and it's, it's, it's their life. They're just exceptionally great coaches. Um, so, yeah, the culture just kind of, it was swept through Canada pretty quickly and we definitely increased our volume of training as a country when he came and that that propelled us, I think, from, you know, bottom of the A final or to B final into the ranks of the upper levels of the A final just by volume alone, right, because we probably trained probably twice as much as the crews prior to us. Um, except when you go way back into the early, early days, I know Canada used to train really hard back in the fifties and sixties too, with certain coaches, but in our era, uh, that was a big step for us. And that sort of propelled us into that next level and, uh, of of performance. And then you add on the technical aspects and the sports psychology aspects, which he has a firm grasp on. And, uh, the whole thing just kind of gelled fairly well over the two years or two and a half years we rode together, three years.
1: Yeah, oh, it sounds really cool, and yeah, I mean, all the athletes that we that have rode under under Spracklin talk about how hard it is, but how how good it was. And we want to go back though to the Barcelona Olympics, 1992, and obviously you just win that race um, by by a fraction. And what did it feel like crossing the finish line? You know, being going, being at your first Olympics. Uh, what did it feel like crossing that line and and suddenly realizing that? Also going into the race as a bit of an underdog, and and what did it feel like finishing the race and realizing that you were Olympic champion?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, it was I think like any anybody who wins the Olympics, obviously it's a bit of a yeah, huge mixed emotions i mean we were spent physically so i gotta say like people always ask me how did it feel and getting the national anthem playing all that stuff like well you know to be honest anyway it was it was tough uh it was a tough race it was the toughest race of my life i could say without without doubt um physically speaking so yeah i would say relief would be the number one thing that we did it uh and then of course is the elation of uh having you know achieved your goal it was a fairly longish time coming, but it is interesting. I know I listened to a couple of your other interviews you guys did in the on the row show, and yeah, uh, you know, the paths are always very interesting to hear how people get through the process from where they wrote junior and then ran through the ranks, or went to senior and had a few bad experiences before they had the good one, or finished their career on a good note. And there's lots of different directions to have. So I mean, I was fortunate to come into that crew as a youngster. Elifly speaking and have the experience of those around me to uh, get in a great situation, obviously. So a lot of things came together nicely, which I'm super uh, thankful for, looking back on it. But um, yeah, the race, I mean, it was it was hot. It was 40 degrees in Spain, and it was uh, the last race of the Olympic regatta. So, um, you know, we were all super jubilant, obviously, but uh, we had to row straight to the podium dock right after that, and then uh, they did the medal ceremonies and the national anthems and everything but it was the last uh last event of the regatta so they had a bunch of speeches going on for the you know fees and whatnot and i remember just standing there wavering back and forth about to pass out <laughs> thinking just get me off this dock i need to get back into the boat and row back to the dock and uh decompress but it was uh so that's the, the truth of the national anthem coming up people ask me what did it feel like i'm like well <laughs> <laughs> i kind of wish i was a swimmer or a track and field athlete where you can go and have a shower and get changed into your podium wear and have your ceremony after things have settled a bit but it was you know basically right off the off the finish line paddle to the podium and and uh wait for the uh wait for the medals to come but um great moment obviously not devaluing it in any way but it was a interesting um scenario that way because we were pretty pretty spent
2: yeah and um I think it's it's quite a it's quite a surreal experience going through that, and I think it's it's one of those things where you can't you, you can't really uh, expect. I mean, obviously, I'm, I have no idea what you're talking about, but it seems that it's it's something that you know. It's there's no sort of textbook or notebook that you can read that'll tell you like this is what it's going to feel like. I think it's quite a surreal experience, and it's different for everyone. Um, but it's definitely an incredible experience. And just to move forward, so you, you won a gold medal in 1992, uh, it's really impressive, probably on the high, high of your career. And then, you know, the, it seems like there were a few guys retired. You're talking about that, a large group of guys from 1988. And then you made a decision to move into the skull, um, and a really successful decision, too. And we'll we get into, into your 1993 performance. But just chat to us about the the initial uh, decision to move into the skull and your, your, what were your motivations getting into the skull and um, what, you know, what was it like first, first thing, set, first setting out in, in the single?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, kind of serendipitous, I guess. I didn't, it wasn't a master plan by any stretch. I, uh, like you said, a lot of guys retired after the uh, 92 games from the eight, so I was kind of forced into some other boat. I didn't know what it was going to be, but there weren't a lot of athletes around at the time. Some people took some time off. Others retired. Mike moved to the States to coach down there. So it was kind of a bit of a limbo time in terms of our coaching in Canada. And um, I didn't really have a lot of choices at the time, or at least I don't remember too many choices. So I just thought, well, I'll just paddle around the single for a while and um, just kind of decompress because I don't think I could have handled a full... Four-year quadrennial, uh, right after '92, to launch back into serious—like, well, it was sort of serious training, but in a different way—to um, go back into the sweep program, for example, and train like we did would have been pretty hard, I think, to do mentally. A lot like a very nice mental break, just to get out of the the sweeps situation and um, move into something else. And moving to the single skull to me was almost like a new sport. To be honest, it was like different enough, as you guys know, I'm sure you've done. Sweep and sculling uh, sometimes, you know, it's quite a different, you know, different movement, different action. I swept, swept starboard pretty much my whole career. And, you know, all of a sudden, you're sculling and using your right arm going out to the side is very different left and right handedness and it's very different to from two hours, uh, one hour to two hours. So I, I almost was like a novice all over again. So it was almost refreshing. It was like pretty light and easy initially. Um, Terry Paul kind of coached me, who was our coxswain in 92. He was doing his coaching uh, certification kind of thing throughout that time. So, yeah, we just kind of had fun. Like, we had a, had a good relationship with him throughout the 8s career. And, um, and yeah, I just kind of took to it fairly quickly. But I was I was not a sculler at all prior to that. We did a little bit of work in singles in 90 and 91, um, but mostly in pairs. Uh, and most of the guys were more competent than I was in the single in the early days because I just didn't, didn't do any sculling. And I think we actually did a national trials in near 91. I'm not sure which year it was, but uh, probably 91. And uh, we had a bunch of singles that uh, our boatmen had made, actually, like homemade type boats, basically, for the National Training Center. And we all rowed these, like, they're big, yeah. heavy, 50-pound boats. So we were all bashing That's those around. But I, I, I was hopeless at rowing those anyway. So um it wasn't until basically after 92 where I really committed to rowing more in the single. And uh, yeah, I just took to it fairly quickly, obviously. But uh, in the early days, didn't know anything about my actual speed compared to anything else because I didn't know a lot of reference points really around the time.
2: Yeah, I think saying that you took to it fairly quickly is quite the understatement because I've, uh, I, I also, just from personal experience, it's taken me quite a long time to develop any sort of proficiency in the single skull and I am not very proficient in the single skull mm-hmm. and to obviously move from the eight because you, uh, you started drawing in university and um, I'm sure that was just sweep or dominated the whole time and then you go from the eight into the skull and in 1993 you become a world champion and we you know, the, the single skull in the 1990s was almost similar to heavyweight boxing in the 1990s. It was almost this golden age. You have Mike Tyson, um, uh, Evander Holyfield. And then you have in the skull, you have Thomas Lange. Um, you have Václav Chalupa. And you win your first world championship in the skull racing these legends. I mean, Thomas Lange just won two gold medals in back-to-back Olympics. So, chat to us a bit about getting to 1993. Having a cracker race and winning. And especially in that race, because you, you were up the 1500 meter. Vaclav uh, Chalupa went up on you and then you responded and went up again. And I mean, it's a really cool race to watch. And it must have been a huge perspective change winning that and a huge confidence boost in your, in your decision to go into the skull
3: mm-hmm yeah it was uh yeah pretty surreal and yes obviously the the trajectory was was pretty fast uh looking back on it but it it I would say it was very steep as well in the in that I was you know relatively hopeless for a while like I, I flipped the single quite a bit in my early days uh yeah it's kind of crazy looking back on it but uh anyway and then I, I finally was able to kind of get my legs on it at the catch and not feel really precarious and uh I don't know what it was. I, I do row quite long at the at the at the catch, so I don't know. Maybe the stability was just off for me, or my center of gravity was too high. But anyway, it took a while. But yeah, that race was. Um, it's hard to put into words, honestly. The, uh, the sort of surprise slash shock slash. I'm just happy to be racing in the same regatta in the same event as as you say, Thomas Lenga, who's. You know, a legend, obviously, to everybody in that world at that time. Anyway, um, I did watch videos of him when I was sweep rowing um, just to look at like what technique looked like and a like, beautiful technique, basically, in a single skull before I even skulled. Um, so, yeah, be lining up against him and Vatsal Lupa. Obviously, those guys had this huge rivalry in the Olympics in 92 and uh, and and before then, obviously legends in the single and um, yeah I come along I just felt like you know who who is this Canadian dude like whatever nobody gave me much of a thought (laughs) because you know it hadn't really been done much before that time switching to sculling or, or doing well right away so it was kind of new ground for a lot of people I guess including myself so Um, so I raced the University Games just to give it a bit of context I didn't race a lot in the single prior to the Worlds Um, University Games were in St. Catharines that year in Canada so I raced against uh, Nikolai Taga who is Romanian who raced a very successful career in the 8, the 4 and the single a bit and maybe some more events maybe the quad, I'm not sure very versatile guy anyway so he he won the University Games if I recall in 93 before the Worlds uh, so I was second to him, though. So I was thinking, okay, well, that's pretty good out of the gates. So it was my first, basically my first competition, let alone international competition in the and then in the single. And then I just prepared for the. I don't think I raced anymore. I can't even remember before the worlds in '93. I think that was it. And uh, yeah, I got to the Czech Republic and um, just kind of marched through the uh, preliminary rounds and thought, well, gaining a bit more momentum mentally for sure. And uh, I mean, I I knew I was relatively fast, but you just don't know right at that level whether I can do it on the on that stage with those guys who had a ton more experience than I had, obviously. Um, And then, yeah, the race itself was one of those crazy races. I I looked looked at the coverage not too long ago just to get reacquainted with it. It's been a while and uh yeah just the commentary is pretty hilarious just listen to that because i don't think anyone you know expected me to do that obviously and then i had that weird fumble the first like eight strokes of the race they talk about catching a bit of a crab so funny story so i'd actually i had actually uh caught my thumb in my in my singlet or my jersey at the top because we just had shorts and a singlet we didn't have one pieces back then or canada didn't anyway so they weren't that tight so this loose kind of uh sleeveless top and uh I caught my thumb in the first, I don't know, five, six, seven strokes of the race, basically caught a bit of a crab and lost that know, probably half a length to a length right off the bat. And I like to start fast generally. So that kind of set me back right away. I'm like, oh, great, here we go. So my chariots of fire moment, I call it if anyone gets that reference. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that kind of almost reinstilled my adrenaline in the first, you know, 15 seconds of the race. And I, I was behind by a little bit at that point. And I slowly picked my way through the field, uh, for the, up to the thousand meter mark. And, uh, I mean, to be honest, it felt much easier than an eights race, which I think is my biggest value or the biggest value of, of going from eights to singles is, uh, it's, it's such an intense, in the eight, it's such an intense high rate, just bash, crash and go. It's lactic acid. It's hardly any time in between to settle. It's like sprint off the line, you get your middle body and then you're sprinting again to the finish and the whole thing is over so quickly that you don't have time. You're just dealing with lactic acid the whole time. And the single is a bit of a longer protracted race over, you know, seven minutes instead of five and a half or whatever it may be. And, uh, I just felt, it felt much more comfortable to me, right. Just coming for fresh off 92, um, hardest race of my life to this relatively comfortable, relatively low rate situation. And I just felt really strong. I'm just in the thousand meter Mark and I'm like, yeah, I've got another gear here. This is, this is feeling good. And I guess it's probably out in front just slightly by the thousand, if I recall. And, um, and then, yes, that's Falupa Hometown, of course. He's racing in, in Czech Republic, where he's from. Never beaten uh, Thomas Lange in a big competition before. And he figures this is his chance, right, as it was, uh, or should have been. And uh, he puts on this monster finish or start-finish uh, sprint. A bit early, probably, for him. But he was desperate. And uh, hometown, favorite and everything. Home crowd. And he just went crazy with, I don't know, it seemed like about 600 meters to go. He just jacks the rates up and he's already rating quite high compared to everyone else. I think he tended to row a little bit shorter and a little bit higher than most people. So he flew by me and I kind of saw my peripheral vision a little bit, but didn't really really panic for some reason. I just thought, yeah, I've got a bit more in me, so we'll just see how this plays out and Langer was kind of falling back which was a crazy surprise um, and it became kind of that two boat race by the end and Halupa I think just ran out of gas a little bit and I was just feeling pretty good right like I just had a, had a good another gear there for the last five and I uh, was able to row back through him after him rowing through me which is yeah it's kind of hard to do under normal circumstances but like I said I think he probably went a bit early and a bit high and hard and just couldn't quite sustain it and then when I sort of made a push to come back it was probably tough for him so to this day i feel kind of bad about that race in a weird way because i mean as great <laughs> as it was to win like uh that that a you know i consider him a friend i don't know him that well because he doesn't speak a lot of english back in the day but we hung out a bit and i went to his regatta in czech republic that he hosts every year and so a great guy uh, and uh, you know I, I, we have a good good uh camaraderie there but um you know his one chance to really do it would have been that for sure and hometown crowds so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I really spoiled this moment there, but uh that's racing right
1: <clears throat> that's yeah. uh that's racing for sure so obviously you you had a huge engine coming from the eight and you even speak about the the physical difference between the skull and the and the eight and the eight but and you spoke about watching a lot of rowing and and learning so so what are the big technical changes that you had to make in your adjustment into the skull and what did you think what do you think you got right so well that year to to give you Um, or that speed by the end of it
3: ah good question um yeah i mean the the physical engine is i would say by far the number one thing that allowed me to transfer over quickly like i said it was just that lack of of pain and a bit longer race just seemed a lot easier physically um and technically of course it is sort of like a different sport in that sense just uh and I, i don't I don't think i was overly technically great at that point definitely i was doing certain things right obviously but um the physical side of it was probably like i said the number one aspect of it but um i still had some foibles technically that needed working out and so, so some i worked out and some i never did but um it was always a challenge i think uh, technically speaking I'm, I'm fairly technically minded when it comes to rowing so I'm always watching video and trying to refine things. But, um, I mean, getting back to Mike Spracklin's sort of philosophy, he was always coaching, like, the blade. He very rarely talked about the body, very rarely talked about, you know, the opening or the angle of the body at the finish, all that stuff, that kind of, it would sort of be a response to the goal of what we wanted to do for speed relative to the blade going through the water. So I think my perspective of it is, anyway, that he coached the blade all the time. So he wanted that entry to be perfect, wanted the blade to be covered, get that sort of bell note he used to call it at the catch, where you're getting that pocket form behind the blade and really sustaining that through the through to the finish and not chopping the finish off making sure your blades extracted like 90 degrees out of the water at the finish. So you're not losing any water there and not flipping any water at the, at the finish. So all those fundamentals of blade dynamics, I think were g- drilled into me a lot in the eight and the concepts are exactly the same in the single, right? It's just, you've got two fiddly ores to deal with instead of one <laughs> long one, <laughs> So it's a bit more technically difficult, but the concepts in terms of that were, were the same. And, and I always contend, I know people talk a lot about the differences of, of technique within different boats, even in, in sweep rowing, even within sweep rowing, whether you row a pair differently to an eight or a four. And I, I'm always of the mind that the fundamental rowing stroke is, is what it is. It, is, it there's, this is, the, this is the best way to move a blade, you know, or lock the blade onto the water, move the boat, Past, and there's a not so efficient way to do that. And it's the same in sculling as in sweep. You still have to get that bottom edge down to the water as quickly as possible at the catch and lock the blade in, keep it through the water at the right depth, extract it efficiently, right? I mean, it's pretty simple when yeah. you think about rowing, but it's super hard to do. Obviously, it's like anything. Doing that at a, a 200 heart rate is, is no easy thing. But uh, when you take a step back, as I have now for 20 years plus, um, you kind of realize, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple as are most sports when they're done well. So those fundamentals, I think just carried over into the single. I didn't feel like I was rowing anything dramatically differently in terms of those fundamentals.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, you hit it so spot on that the, the basic, um, yeah, the fundamentals of rowing don't really change that much. And especially if you're getting coached constantly on your, on your catch and on the blade, and on the the blade work through the through the water that shouldn't change a huge amount. Moving between an eight and a and a skull or or any boat class, it should uh, it should stay fairly consistent because you you're just still getting uh, you're still trying to move the boat in the best way. I think the the way people row can change quite a lot, and there's a lot of different ways that people can argue on the on the on the execution of the of the perfect stroke. But I think if you if you're doing the the fundamentals really well. Then the boat is is going to move really, really smoothly and really well.
3: Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, and then of course, I guess having the benefit of being in the eight and the single myself, I kind of you realize the whole group dynamic thing also, right? The crew synchrony, I think, becomes the most important thing in an eight. It's not so much how you row; it's more about doing the exact thing together, right? So that's going to really nurture the run of an eight if everybody's yeah. doing the same thing. Swing-wise, whereas in a single, it's just one person, so you don't have the synchrony to worry about. Then you're just down to the fundamentals of the rowing stroke is, is making the difference between a fast and a slow single sculler is uh, just that aspect of it. It's more the rhythm of the, of the boat. It's not so much the, the, the crew synchrony, right? So that's a big difference there. And then, you know, it's just a matter of deciding how you want to row the single, whether it's a high rate, low rate, you know, a bit shorter, longer, are the only things you have to decide to do, but the blade always has to move through the water pretty much the same way right
1: I think you really hit something really interesting there on the on the single and the and the eight and and I think a lot of people that we speak to that have spend a lot of time in the single they enjoy the single they enjoy uh being by themselves and doing that training um you know being in complete control of of the outcome and and their racing and was that a was that a big shift for you I mean coming from a huge crew boat. With uh, all this, uh, you know, having a Cox, having seven people behind you and, and just so much action to to going into the single that is so calm and quiet.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an, a good transition for me at that point just because we'd done the whole campaign for 99192. So it felt nice just to have a little bit of a respite from that. But um, yeah, I think, you know, not, not, not everybody wants to row the single or not everyone is going to be good at rowing a single part of that's technical and part of that is mental right i think a lot of people i've talked to just think like how do you do that how do you go out on the water for five or six hours sometimes by yourself and just be self-motivated to train like some people just don't you get off on that right it's not their thing they need to be part of a crew and uh i got differentiates certain athletes and certain sports from other sports is The ability to be able to do that and the ability to want to do that, right? Not everyone wants to do that. They might have the ability to be like, no, I don't want to go in the lake by myself for five hours and just (laughs) row around and (laughs) be self-motivated. So that that takes a certain type of person, which might be a slightly dysfunctional person, I'll admit. But um, for me, it was fairly comfortable transition i mean i love working out with people and can also be pretty self-motivated obviously and i think any single scholar's got to have that aspect of it and and be able to enjoy time on their own and be able to enjoy the accountability of of not having a a crew waiting for you in the morning to get you out of bed you know you've got to be a self-starter and be able to really motivate yourself to push and uh it's not easy in in any Event, I guess that happens in any sport. It's easy for that little edge to come off when you're training and not even realize it in the same angle because you're not you're not being pushed by anybody else. And then you all of a sudden you get beside some other boat and you get doored off the line. You're like, oh, I guess I wasn't pulling as hard as I could. I thought I was, but I wasn't. So those little things are definitely gotta you got to keep in check. Um, but I did you know a fair bit of training by myself, and then I would row with some of the other Canadian crew, like a lot of the women's crews actually. I row with the women's lightweight double world champions at the time and the and marnie and kathleen and the heavyweight double um they were great training partners for me off and on in the summertime so i always had boats to train with which i definitely liked doing uh the men's pairs were generally a bit fast for me so i'd sometimes take a lead on those guys and they'd kind of mow me down throughout the 2k pieces we do but uh a lot of training with women's crews, actually. I look back on it. But um, so, yeah, it was, it, it suited my personality to answer your question, I guess. Uh, and it's not everybody's personality to really want to spend all that time, uh, like I said, by yourself in the single. But uh, I quite enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. So um, you, you just come off your, your, your win in 1993. And um, definitely, you know, the next two years, you definitely seem like you got stuck into the competitive element of the skull. Um. Yeah, uh, and you know, in the build-up to 1996, uh, 94, 95, must have been a bit disappointing coming, uh, finishing eighth and seventh, and then the Olympic, the Olympic year comes around, and you really looked like you were in really good form. Um, and you know, this is this is the 1996. I really feel like is is a really good example of how competitive the guy was at the time. Because I mean, when you look at the the names in that final, even the B final, they're all legends. I mean, Yuri Janssen um, it's un- unfortunate not to have made the a- I think the a- final, and he was he was uh, the world champion the year before. Istok Chop, uh, Chalupo was there, Lange was there. So um, and of course you know Müller and um, chat to us a bit about you know the lead up to 1996 and um, finding uh, finding your form again. And of course your second Olympics, you're not you're not the young guy, you're not the underdog. Uh, you've you've had success in the skull and talk to us about racing or maybe the other side of that. Um, other side of the journey
3: uh yeah the, the next chapter i guess between 93 and 96 yeah so that was um so yeah basically i mean i went back to i went to school i'm a chiropractor so i went to chiropractic college right after the season of 93 so i moved to toronto at the time and uh yeah, if you look at my results only it looks like <laughs> i just uh, had a few bad years there but uh, basically i was in Toronto a full-time school super intense program for four years there off and on um so for 94 95 i was like i say living in toronto didn't row on the water at all until the summertime. so i basically just did a bit of erg work mostly school work so i wasn't training much at all for that whole time between um 93 and 96 off and on so those two years were awfully bad bad years for me on the single i kept it going just enough to be able to race basically i'd uh finish my exams and then move to london ontario in like whatever april or may i guess train my ass off for three months and then uh try and qualify within canada to be the single scholar and then do my best at the world's just to kind of keep my foot in the door so It was definitely two bad years there in uh, 94 and 95. And then 96, I took a year off school. So I had kind of that whole year after 95. So almost a year and a half before that, before 96 rolled around. So I had the 95 Worlds. And then from that point on, I trained full-time again for the year and a bit leading up to 96 Olympics. So that explains those two bad results. So yeah, I I didn't play my cards very well if I wanted to win more medals at the international level. That was sort of probably my prime rowing years would have been probably 92 to 95 or six uh looking back on it but um at the time i just wanted to get myself set up a little bit for life and not row and then be spat out at 35 and have nothing to go to so i thought that that could happen very easily um so i just made a decision to just put rowing on the back burner for a couple years there and then um in 96 that was uh yeah i felt really good just because i had the 95 carryover i think i was i can't remember what was like seventh or something at the world like i won the b final maybe in in uh, finland and uh then i was able to ramp it up properly and train and i still had some carryover i think from the old days too fitness wise so the muscle memory kind of kicked in and i was able to train full time for a year and a half essentially leading up to leading up to atlanta and yeah some some good results and um I guess Duisburg and uh, Lucerne. I won that year, '96. I'm going get my years correct here. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, I think I won Lucerne that year, yeah, against uh, Lange and Halupa. So, yeah, I was feeling pretty strong. I think I was probably looking back on it almost peak years there around uh, around '96 for me.
2: Yeah, and then um, into the, I mean, the '96 single sculls race in the at the Olympics. I think. There's so many legendary races in the single, but that's definitely up there with one of them. Um, and I mean, you, you said earlier about like you know the, the 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 margins, and you know sometimes it's it's your day, not your day. And I mean, of course, winning a Olympic silver medal must have been an incredible incredible thing, especially now in the skull. I mean, it must be. There's a different element when you 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 by yourself and you, you manage to you manage to come second, but you know, obviously it was a big race from Zeno Muller who, you know, had a, a r- amazing last 500 meters. So, you know, chat to us a bit about that race and, you know, what was it like getting that that Olympic medal in the skull? Uh,
3: yeah. So that was, um, yeah, 96. Uh, that was, I mean, it was a tough race looking back on it. I, it's not one I love looking back on it. Um, obviously winning an Olympic medal in the, uh, any medal is is nice, I guess. But when you're when you're ranked basically first and you are touted to win a gold medal, anything less than that's kind of disappointing. And the way it happened was kind of disappointing. So, but um, I yeah, I had a good race. I can't look back on it like oh, I should have done something differently. But leading up to it was a pretty awesome summer. Like I said, I won. I think I won Duisburg and Lucerne that year, and fairly convincingly too. So it was like I'm feeling pretty good. Leading up to 96, and then uh, as I do, I like to lead from the, from the line if I can in racing, just to be able to have perspective on everybody around me. So I always go out fairly hard, probably a little too hard sometimes, if that uh, sometimes catches me up. But um, it unfolded as it normally does, uh, had a good lead and then it was. I was thinking it was like a two boat race, basically, me and Langa by the by the midway point. And uh, like I said, I'm always wary of him because he's a he's a super great uh, great and great legend. So we were just going toe to toe. And then I hadn't really thought about Zeno too much. I think he was off in lane five or six. I can't remember exactly, but he was quite far back at the first thousand. So I don't know. Zeno always plays a few games, and some years he just doesn't show up, and other years he's fantastic. So I don't know. Always uh, never quite know where Zito's going to put it in, so... And then, uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good through the 1500 in that race and, uh, in control of the race basically from, from the start to, to that point. And then, uh, Zina Mueller puts on this crazy last, like, I don't know, I think it was probably last five, but it seemed like the last 200 meters, it was, he just closed the gap right up on us. And I remember looking over to my left and Thomas Lang is going hard and and I'm sprinting to the finish and we're, you know, we're not going slowly, obviously. And, Zeno you know, it just goes through us like we're not even like, like, it's like we're standing still almost like how, you know, it's one of those otherworldly finishes for him. And like I said, we weren't, we weren't, I wasn't bonking. I wasn't like out of fuel either. I was going for it and uh, felt pretty good. And he just went through both of us like like it was nothing. So disappointing that way because we in control of a race so much and uh, would have been great to win that obviously. But uh, that unfolded like that. So not great for lying out or myself, I guess in that sense. But a medal's a medal. Looking back on it, it was good. But um, yeah, that was a, a great, great race for Zeno, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we we recently chatted to to Zeno and uh, and. Uh, speaking about this race he was actually really funny and uh he was talking about how um he had like had all this anger in in him over like so many years and that it all like he just put it all into that uh that last 500 meters and you know I mean, most people we speak to talk about like the i don't know the the serenity and the 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 like the skill of the rowing and uh, no no one really goes into the anger as much as, and then uh, it was really funny to hear him speak about this uh, anger and then um, and how badly he wanted to beat you in that race
3: oh uh, you're like okay Well, that's interesting i never get the other side of the perspective but uh yeah i guess you got to channel what you can channel right <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's anger. Yeah.
0: Sometimes and I think it's it
3: is. So yeah that 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 uh, that sounds like Zeno. He's a bit of a bull, right? So I'm sure when he gets his uh, his backup, he's pretty he's pretty fast for sure.
1: Yeah, he said that you you'd uh, you'd blown him off and he tried to come and speak to you in '93, and that you were uh, like a, a hero of his. And then you you had obviously maybe you you just caught you at the wrong moment and uh, and you had uh, passed him off. And and since then the the anger was building for for so many years.
3: <laughs> oh really oh goodness wow okay what well, uh, <laughs> that's news to me i knew nothing about that i always thought he was uh that's funny okay well i'll, I'll tell <laughs> i always thought he was the standoffish one so i'm like why? why is he so unfriendly so who knows maybe, maybe there was some uh, backstory i don't even know about there but uh <laughs> there was no ill will on my part for sure back in those days but uh there was definitely some uh, healthy competitive fire going around, and uh, a lot of stress around the race course with you know Waddell later on too, and uh, and Zeno, but uh, all all in good uh, good spirits generally. But um, yeah, he's uh, yeah Zeno is always a bit of a, a dark horse kind of guy and uh, in the background, and I never really got the chance to uh, you know have a chance to in a more relaxed environment just to uh, hang out <laughs> with him. So I don't really know. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs>
2: yeah. Of course, the, the healthy competitiveness is a very much a staple of the of the rowing the rowing community, um, and you know I think when I when I look at when I look at that 1996 race, it, it really stands out to me, and I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on you know if you've been following the racing at the moment, and I think um, I'm always interested to. I was interested to ask you about what you thought about the, the, the sculling race from last year at Linz. I don't know if you've been
3: following the, the racing at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: From 2019
2: Worlds? Yeah, yeah 2019 Worlds.
3: Yeah, I mean I, I I don't generally follow much to be honest with you, but uh I was listening to some of your podcasts earlier, just uh I got uh, down the rabbit hole there. You guys you guys are doing a great job of uh yeah. interviewing Thanks. some cool people. So uh yeah, thank you. Uh it's really cool. I uh, know that uh, generally I haven't watched a lot of rowing over the last little while. I kept abreast with things for like ten years after I retired and then it kinda of slowly dissipates as you know fewer and fewer people but um i did watch that race actually on your recommendation when you mentioned it on the podcast uh i guess talking to talking to ollie i guess it was and so i did watch that recently just to see what it's all about uh yeah great great race obviously yeah
2: yeah the the reason i brought it up is because i it's the last couple i mean years of the olympiads there's definitely um, I mean, no disrespect to the scholars out there, but it seems like it's, it's been a two horse race. Um, and like everyone, you know, the form changes. So often there's a the different people that are in the, the two horse race and similar to your race in 1996, it was so many, uh, amazing scholars that were in form and people winning world champs coming into the Olympic race. You know, it was really cool. And the reason I bring it up was in last year. It's also, at, it's suddenly like at the moment we have so many quick scholars again, and you know you watch that race, and you're just like, I have no idea what's going to happen at any point of the race. At the 1500 meter mark, 1K, even 250, 100 meters to go, you had no idea what was going to happen.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I mean, that's great, great to see for rowing. So uh yeah, they're all really slow or they're all really fast. I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, that's uh, look, that's a really like monsters, uh, honestly
1: that's a really good uh, a good question like we we'll speak about a lot where um you know if if everyone is really close then generally maybe there isn't anyone that's particularly fast and uh, and usually when there's someone that's really fast then the the field starts to to spread out a little bit more but yeah it's just good racing is is just awesome to watch i think no matter which way you look at it
3: yeah, no, there's, uh, like I said, there's, I'm saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but facetiously, <laughs> But I think within, within a country, I think that's definitely the case. If you don't have a standout person in one event, then you're probably not going to be good internationally, right? If the chance <laughs> of having two great singles or two great pairs or whatever in, in a country is pretty rare. So if they're both pretty close in your national trials, the chances of them being a standout internationally is quite rare, right? So. I kind of transfer that same thing to international competition, but obviously when you get to the final, a final of an Olympics or world championships or world cup, then uh, those guys are all obviously laying it down hard. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting dynamics. I think I always thought of it as sort of three, three top people in the event generally. And then it's kind of Peters down a little bit, but uh, in the single, whether it was, you know, myself and Halupa and Lange for a while, and then it was Waddell and Zeno and myself. And so, these kind of three people and then they're you know at any given time someone can have a great race and and, and uh, break into that pack but um i think the challenge is usually getting through from the semifinals to the finals because if you draw you know a tough semi then you can easily not make the final even though you could be a medal contender which is obviously the case sometimes but uh yeah the single looks super exciting as you said um with that race for sure and I was kind of thinking a bit love of, of Rob Waddell when I watched all uh, these idlers there and just taking it down and just like so much raw power. It's just <laughs> insane, right? Yeah, I mean, it's
2: that was it's definitely an incredible time in the, in the single sculling um, the single sculling arena at the moment. Um, but just bringing it back onto to your to your racing career. So you know, after 1996, um, I'm assuming that you also took another couple of years to return to your chiropractic uh, studies. Um, but then, you know, moving, moving on to 1999, I think, you know, the game had changed a bit in the single skull. Uh, like you said earlier, Rob Woodell was on the scene and, and making some waves. And chat to us about like racing in 1999. You had a successful season uh, coming third at World Champs. I'm sure you must have taken that as a, a, as, as a good boost for the, the following Olympics. Uh, chat to us a bit about that, that year of racing and, you know, racing in the, in the 2000 Olympiad. Mm
3: -hmm. yeah so yeah you're right i did yeah so i went back to school after 96 and then um finished off my uh it was a four-year program so i finished that off in 98 so yeah similar to 94 95 97 98 were pretty much the same only i think slightly worse results because i think the the dissipation slowly happens my fitness carryover became less and less and less and uh the program, like I said, was fairly intense. I didn't have much time to train. So those two years weren't great. Um, in, uh, was I think and um, or the 98 in Cologne. And then that's where, yeah, I think that's where Rob Waddell started to show his, uh, his true, uh, talent there. Um, I think he was in the four 96, if I recall. And, uh, and then he switched to the single and uh yes he was definitely becoming a force around those years but i was definitely not a force in those years and uh oh yeah jamie coven won that's right in 97 the uh, u.s scholar jamie coven um so leading up yeah two bad years and then 99 we had our um the world's in uh, saint Catharines in canada so that was nice to have a sort of a home home country hometown uh flair there but uh so yeah i was Feel it still on the up and up on the curve, I guess, in terms of my progression back to sort of racing form. Um, So I was pretty happy with that race. Um, I think, yeah, it was it was a new era, as you say. Rob Waddell was just so powerful on the on the erg and starting to figure it out on the water, obviously, at that point. And uh, he dominated pretty clearly over Zeno and, and myself. We were like I was pretty far back on that race. Uh, but to get in the medals was, was fine uh, for me, as I say, the, the, um, the goal was for 2000 at that point, and 99 was just a good, uh, good stepping stone for that. Um, so yeah, pretty happy with that, but definitely, yeah, I think that was the, the, uh, the dawning of a slightly new era with, uh, with Rob Waddell the start of his domination of the event. And, uh, he's a, a force obviously, and <laughs> became a bit of a battling partner. I was the whipping boy for the most part for those ones, but, uh, And then 2000, uh, trying to think, uh, oh, we had Lucerne, I guess, was the big uh, race prior to the Olympics there, where I was, again, feeling sort of fairly good on form, Um, and Rob Waddell, yeah, I think I remember that race, it's slowly coming back to me here, Um, (laughs) the mid part of the race with Rob Waddell, yeah, so he was was a force, but... I do remember, yeah, that was actually, I remember looking over at him and we were dueling through the thousand meter at Lucerne, which is probably my favorite regatta in the world, Lucerne. I always loved it there just as a, as a venue. And uh, we were literally stroke for stroke through the middle body. I was like, okay, this is good. Uh, at least keeping up with the big man here. And uh, it's funny. Yes, I, I sort of felt a bit like the underdog at that point um then he would you know he could obviously lay it down for the last 250 I felt said like he had an extra gear so if I'm'm I'm mar- matching him through the middle I'm probably gonna pay for it later here so uh but I think it was a relatively really close race by the end but um we had some really good strokes through the middle where I felt like there was I don't know 10 or 15 strokes or literally like, blade to blade uh, were beside each other in the lanes and uh, just giving her like two gladiators which is like amazing feeling right and then uh, he went on to win that race but uh, second was okay like I said leading up to the 2000 games so that was one of my more memorable races in Lucerne that year I guess uh, yeah okay yeah
2: and then obviously now I mean it's, it takes us quite naturally to the Olympics and uh, obviously you had some good form going into the Olympic race and again another that's uh, the single scar race at the sales Olympic games was another really big one, but obviously quite disappointing for you on on coming, uh, coming away with a, with a f- fourth place. But, you know, I, I, we've been talking uh, throughout the, the interview about the, the fine margins of racing and uh, you've been on, uh, you know, both engines and, uh, uh, I'm interested to hear you know the perspective of you know someone thats that's done so well and then also been um, on the same on the balancing act of, of really achieving such great results and also being on the tough end of the results too I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any interesting insights um, looking back now on in that race in the, in the 2000 Olympic Games and having such a close dice with Marcel hacker for uh, that bronze medal
3: yeah that was uh tough um yeah I would say emotionally devastating not to over uh dramatize it but uh yeah I yeah. was I was pretty choked after that race I gotta say uh I didn't even <laughs> yeah, I just gotta a lot of emotion came out of that race for sure afterwards looking back on it but um yeah and the 2000 was an interesting race I mean I felt like I underperformed uh but the, the the preliminary stuff, it's interesting, yeah, as you say, like to, to have all my success kind of earlier on in my career, I guess, and then I'm kind of hanging on a bit. But I always sort of justified my results when I was in school, so I couldn't expect to be decent in the single during those years. So that was fine. I didn't have a problem with those down years on paper. They don't look like I was performing, but it was not an issue for me anyway. And then when I was able to commit in 99 and uh, 2000 and then 95, 96, I was able to get my results back. But, uh, 2000, I really felt like I tried to do everything right to get that right that year. And it's sort of almost like everything did not go right for the Olympics anyway. So, It was kind of an interesting lesson for me just that, you know, sometimes if you've not forced things, but if you try to organize things and get them all perfect, sometimes it's not the best maybe approach or it doesn't always work out that well, or it makes the fall a little steeper and harsher because you have done so much, um, so, and I'm just talking about little things. Like I got, uh, I went to the Empacker uh, factory in Aberback and got basically a custom-made Empacker to fit my body properly, because I was never quite comfortable with the, the standard rigger format. And then they had the wing rigger boat come out just shortly before then, so I wanted to get one of those and have it sort of rigged up, so I could get more comfortable in the shell. So I literally, you know, flew over there by myself or with my with my sort of coach at the time. The two of us and uh spent some time there just uh honing a boat and i wanted to get two boats identical which i think only Empocker can do really well right the, the canadian manufacturer at the time i always felt like they could never do two boats identically so uh the german engineering was was great and was a wonderful company and made super good boats but um so i went there just to try and get two identical boats i would ship one down to australia i would ship the other one to victoria I would get the Victoria one rigged up perfectly and then train in that for whatever, three months, and then uh, be able to fly down to Australia for for Sydney and uh, just transfer all the measurements over and be super comfortable, and um, that was a great plan, but then the boat that came to Canada didn't arrive, it got stuck on the East Coast, it got stuck out of Europe, and then it got trucked across half of canada and anyway it finally arrived like a week or a week and a half before the before i had to leave for sydney so i had like zero time in the boat so the exact opposite that i wanted to happen happened so i was just training in my old boat most of the time and then it finally came and i had like you know a week to kind of get it dialed in which is for me not enough i like to fiddle with my boat for a good three or four weeks before i get really comfortable in it just uh just span and and angles and everything else right as you know Uh, so that kind of was a bit of a wrench and then I got down to Australia and we were training up north in Townsville for a few, uh, a few weeks prior to heading into Sydney and, uh, some parts I needed for the wing rigger didn't arrive with the boat, so I couldn't roll it, so it was all these crazy things not to make excuses but it's just one of those you know you try and think you're taking care of everything and then everything just seems to be going sideways a little bit so didn't have the greatest preparation there i finally got the parts you know flown down uh, especially just to to get them just the parts of the wing rigger so the training there wasn't perfect but uh again no excuses but um then we got to sydney and i uh God, the boat kind of dialed in, but I honestly didn't feel that comfortable with it still. I was fiddling around with my span of my oars a bit, trying to get that um, dialed a bit, and it never quite felt comfortable enough. I'm a bit finicky when it comes to like, the minutia of rig, and a quarter degree here, and a half a centimeter there makes a big difference to me. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I never felt like totally comfortable in that boat going into the Olympics in Sydney, but uh, you know, good enough. I thought it'd be fine. I didn't want to make an excuse of it. And then, um, yeah, everyone was pretty on form that uh, for that regatta, and I think I went through the preliminaries okay. I can't remember. I'm not a good at. I'm not good at uh, remembering semis and heats and lanes and all that stuff. But. Uh, I do remember thinking to myself that after Atlanta, I'm going to go out a little bit more conservatively and, uh, Zeno would, you know, did that in 96 and then came on like gangbusters at the end. And I thought to myself, maybe I'll try, which is totally against my character. Maybe I'll try going out a little more conservatively and, and just try and have a little more left for the second thousand, which is not the way I'd basically ever raced in my life in the eight or the single. And, uh, that kind of came back to nip me, I think because, uh either I took it off a little too much or you know Zeno and Rob were just going nuts off the line, uh so I was down as i don't know if you've seen the race, but you know basically off the picture when you look at the camera on the on the video it's like where's derek he's like totally off the back, and it was turned into a Zeno Rob show at the front there, and um I just never quite got off the line like I used to and like I said whether I took a bit too much off the gas and just turned into way too much which does happen as you guys probably know even in training sometimes you think you're going 100% and then you realize oh I do have an extra little bit there so I you know who knows maybe took it off a little bit there. And then uh, things started to equalize through the middle of the race there. I felt like getting a little more comfortable. and uh, But I wasn't sure if I'd roll myself back into that race at that point. And then, uh, you know, it turned out to be a very close race at the end. I think it was like two seconds between first and fourth. So I think sort of what happened is, I, is my recollection of it is probably Robbins, you know, went out harder than usual, perhaps. And got a lead on me. I went out a little bit less than usual and got really, so that gap just went too fast in the first five, six, seven hundred meters. I was down like way too much. And then uh, Hacker was coming in on the outside lane, and he hadn't had much success, I don't think, prior to that. You know, a few World Cups, he did okay, but I wasn't really thinking about him as a serious threat. However, I do know, as everybody in rowing knows, that if you're in that third spot and there's somebody gutting for a medal behind you, it's a dangerous place to be, right? So. I was like, Uh oh, I better do something here a hacker's gonna get through me. So we both were sprinting hard and we closed the gap and I think uh Zinna Mueller was probably finished at that point almost. He you know spent a lot of gas at the beginning of that race and i'm not sure if he was on 100% form either so we reeled those guys back in again it turned out to be a you know a super close race at the finish but it was like crazy how far back i was in the midway point of that race like too far basically so um yeah so things you know maybe could have done differently but it was like you said every race is different and sometimes you're on the right end of those things but um yeah, I look back with some regret on that race, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have a terrible race, but it definitely wasn't my best race either. So I guess to go out on that note was kind of tough for me. I felt like I said underperformed a little bit, partially from things I could control and partially not. Sure, that's so sorry. Um, there's a long, there's a long, <laughs> long synopsis of oh, yeah.
1: No, it's really uh, cool.
2: It's,
1: it's really cool. It's and it's hard to. I mean, I know it's hard to to talk about the the results that uh, that you don't want to remember, but it's. You know, and like our sport or all sport is just so brutal. I mean, you come, you have a first place, a silver and a fourth place at the games. And if you look at the the difference um, in performance on all of those, it's probably so marginal. And yet the one is absolute elation and and perfection. And that one is so down and, and so disappointing. And it's so sport is so brutal like that it's so uh raw on how it just treats people like if you're not in those if you if you first you the the king and in the next two spots you probably feel pretty good and then that fourth place back is is real um or yeah real sadness i suppose
3: yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 humbling for sure. But no, but I guess looking back on it with some time spent between uh, now and then, obviously it's I've put it into context and I'm okay with it. But uh yeah, fourth place, you know, sucks as as everybody knows. We've all been there at some point or another, but um it, it is racing. I think I remember talking to the Canadian yeah. cycling coach on the way back from, from Sydney on the airplane. And, uh, he's like, and I was kind of devastated. And he's like, you know, Derek sport is not about winning all the time. Right. That's not, that's not what it's about. And I'd, I'd had a pretty, I would say charmed, you know, career and not a lot of super bad races that weren't accountable for. And, uh, so yeah, being the last hurrah, and I knew I was—I knew I was going to retire after that. So it wasn't like I had another chance at it. And uh, like you said, it's hard to set yourself up perfectly for an Olympic final, right? It's—it's. It's a hard thing for all those little factors to come together and you feeling good on the day and having a good sleep and not getting sick and not getting injured and all these little things so um when you do get there whole (laughs) you want to you want to be able to have a good performance but uh that yeah like i said uh, philosophically that is that is sport and uh, it makes the olympics great right that's why it's Greater than the World Championships to win because it's it's a rare opportunity you get every four years to do this thing and uh, you just hope it comes together and obviously I'm super thankful that it did come together at one point in my career and uh, got that out of the way and I could relax a little bit through the rest of my career I suppose in some senses so um you know I'm super grateful in the big picture
2: yeah and uh, do I I also know the feeling of coming forth at the Olympics it's it's a tough one <laughs> we had a we had a tough race in. In Rio, yeah. yeah, we 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 got the, the wrong end of this, of the of the podium in the in the sprint, but you know that's how you know that's how it comes down to it sometimes. But yeah. you know, I I think when you when you look at the sport, it's it's almost like those those results kind of make the the times where you you do well or the times where you really enjoy the sport. It really, I think, you need almost those those times of of really tough results or emotional duress to make the other parts of the sport really worth it or almost give them that value. Um, but I mean, what another thing I'm interested to talk about is I know you said you've listened to some of our podcasts, but uh, one person we have spoken to that I think you know very well is uh, a fellow Canadian, Jake Vetzel.
3: Mm-hmm. Good buddy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I know. yeah. yeah you love, guys, love like a brother.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he, he was, he was awesome. And I, uh, we had, it's definitely, <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to pick, but he's definitely one of the the more memorable uh, interviews that we've 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 had. And uh, I know that you you retired after two thousand, but you there was a period where you came back. Uh, I think in nineteen ninety six, and uh, you spent some time training, training with Jake Vetzel. So and also yeah, so chat to us a little bit about you know what what was that what was that period like, and you know talking talking a bit about Jake because I mean when we when we were speaking to him, he, you know he
3: really had really high praise for you uh yeah yeah jake i did listen to that interview on your podcast it's great uh i didn't actually know he had done that uh i know when you guys asked me to uh, interview for this interview you uh i looked back and thought, oh i saw jake interviewed with you guys in 2018 so i listened to his interview it was, it was great i learned some things actually that i didn't know and uh, like i said he, uh, jake's a really super good friend of mine to this day we see each other all the time and, and chat all the time um so yeah i mean i met jake back in like for 1998 or seven, I don't know, of the year. But, uh, when he decided to row for the U S, uh, for the lead up to the 2000 games. Um, so yeah, he was greener than green when I met him. Like he was 19 years old and he, I remember he came up to, uh, to Canada from, from Berkeley or in the States. And, uh, he was waiting for Terry Paul, our coxswain, and my coach a little bit back in the day uh, on the on, on the bench outside the airport in ch- typical Jake style and um, super, super green, but super talented athlete. I didn't really know who he was. Terry's just like, oh, come come to the airport with me and, and pick up this Jake guy. So we kind of hit it off in a weird way right off the bat. I mean, he's super different to me, but... Um, we like we we uh yin yang pretty well we're very different personality wise but we've always got along really well for some reason so i i felt like he was my sort of protege a little bit i was sort of the wily veteran and he was the the uh, up-and-coming ex-cyclist new to rowing and uh on a scholarship at berkeley <laughs> based on like his his one erg test or something it's a crazy story that itself which you guys have gathered uh, you've already covered yeah. that but um Anyway, long story short, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. So when I retired, I didn't pick up an oar literally for six years after 2000, um, like zero zero rowing. Um, and then he was obviously having his, his moment through 2004 and 2008, his uh, super successful campaign uh, after I retired. So we had the one crossover year in 2000 where he rode for the U.S., And 99 at the Worlds for the U.S. as well. Um, So, yeah, we spent a fair bit of time together training off and on throughout that period, cycling and doing various things just uh, in the sort of late 90s. And then, um, yeah, so I was retired and he thought uh, maybe we should row together. Unfortunately, we both row starboard, so uh, neither of us are willing or able to switch to port. Otherwise, we probably should have rowed a pair um, but we wrote a double just cause I'd been scaling for so long. And, uh, so we tried to do that as a campaign for 2008, um, so this is back in 2000, I guess seven at this point. So we did train together in the double for a while and, uh, to see if we could make a go of that for the Beijing games. And like I said, I'd been long retired, but, uh, he's a good buddy. And, uh, I really wanted to see him succeed after his 2004 relative disappointment. I'm obviously a super good race. Yeah. That one was, Amazing. um, but he was hungry hungry for the gold obviously and uh, deserved it for sure um in the future or some point right that was a, a, a tough race against a super tough crew obviously um so he had some unfinished business and uh we always had good respect for each other so anyway we um just thought we'd give the double a try so we trained pretty hard here in vancouver and in victoria the west coast where the national training center is here in canada and um and uh, how did that unfold? We waste one World Cup in Linz in uh, 97, I guess it was. Um, and Jake had had his back issue. I'm trying to think it was before or after that, but he yeah, had a disc injury and had to do some serious recovery time during our training. So that kind of put us a bit behind the eight ball, which wasn't great. And um, we were uh, in Linz. I think we were in the B, they were seventh or eighth in the B final. I can't remember. They were like first or second in the B final, rather seventh or eighth overall. Which was okay but not wonderful. So we were we were an okay crew. We had moments of brilliance in training and then we'd gotta kind of be a bit flat and uh so I don't think it was uh it was a match made in heaven in a double. Like I said, a pair probably would have been a better choice if one of us had rode port, but uh not to be. So we did the one World Cup and then uh decided Jake would probably have a better a better uh, hope of going back into the Canadian uh eight system and uh being a force in the in that boat, which was super fast at the time so that was the decision we sort of made partially because of his injury partially because of the double not being stellar at the world cup we went to and uh, that was sort of the end of that campaign but it was it was fun while it lasted
1: (laughs) yeah flip it's it's really cool to to have uh, two guys that have been uh, part of these two different um canadian campaigns of the of the eight and and had such success in it so that's really it's really cool especially considering they were 16 years apart, which is also very impressive.
3: There was a, yeah, a big gap, and uh, of course, Vatsalva Hoopa was still there at the World Cup, still racing and never stopping. <laughs> I'm like, <"Man."> yeah. <laughs> some serious longevity in some of those guys' career. It's amazing, right? But uh, so, yeah, it all worked out great. I'm super happy that Jake, you know, made it in the eight, and they had an awesome race, obviously, and managed to have a super, super great career. He did.
1: So I think it's time yeah. to to move it on to to the quick fire questions that we we ask all the guests. And as you listen to a bit of the show, you will uh, you'll know what's what's coming. And uh, we'll be we're very interested to to hear the answers to some of the questions. So the first one is: if you could race any boat class at the games again, which would it be?
3: Okay, well I'm glad I knew these questions a little bit beforehand. But uh, you change them up a little <laughs> bit sometimes. I think I don't know, but. Um, <laughs> Any boat class? So yeah, interesting question. So I, yeah, so obviously I've got the sculling and sweep thing to choose from. So uh, there's that aspect of it which doesn't make it a no-brainer. But honestly, uh, yeah, I learned something about myself when I thought about this question because I gravitate towards sweep. So which is interesting, right? I don't, I don't really have any desire to do a single, double, or quad at all. Um, so I would say the boat class would probably be the four would be the one I would want to go to. I never rowed the four internationally. Loved the boat always in training. We had some really good four races, like amongst ourselves in the 8 back in the day, just battling each other in fours of different combinations and a uh, super nice boat to row. It's got that nice sort of balance between finesse and, and men power and uh control. Uh so I think that would be that. Yeah, the straight four
1: yeah the four is such a awesome boat to to get right the the feeling you get when you when you get the the four moving is really hard to to compete with in the other boat
2: classes yeah no, this is a it's a good one and it, it actually that's that's a good answer because it segues perfectly into the next question which is if you, if you could put any three people from any time into your dream team four, which three people would it be?
3: Right. Uh, so yeah, this is a, yeah interesting question. It's probably not going to be the most fun answer for you, but um, it's tough to say. I mean, there's so many great sweep rowers out there that would be cool to row with. But I think you know, as as a crew, you want to have people you want to you know resonate with and know know well enough to know you will resonate with. They're, it's sort of like the classic: who would you invite to dinner if you could invite anyone in the world to dinner and have a conversation, right? But um, yeah. So I would probably roll a four with. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass some love back to my brother Jake there. Uh, Jake Wetzel it is. Sorry, Jake. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and say we'll go with a, a four with Jake uh, Wetzel, me and um, the, my dark horse is gonna be Andy Crosby, who you guys will not know, but he was in the eight with me back in the day, and he was my pair partner for most of the campaign through 1991, 92. We had a super good. Um, Pair combination just gelled really well and we're super fast. And, um, just one of those pure natural boat movers like, odd, odd guy, love him, but uh, interesting out there, dude. But just some very, you know, those guys that are super in touch with the water and just have this perfect boat feel. And he was always that to me and uh, made a great compliment to uh, the pair when we wrote it. So, I'm going to pick Andy Crosby, Jake Wetzel, and then uh, I'm going to copy Jake on this one, which just a total coincidence, actually. But, um, I think, uh, James Tompkins from Australia, which he picked, which is interesting because he is the guy that I've always kind of, uh, resonated with technically speaking back in the sweep days and great in the awesome foursome back in the day. And he rode the pair in 99, he's won a million medals. So, uh, but he's a great rower. I just love sort of watching his technique, uh, very efficient and, uh, what I consider to be a good rowing stroke he had, uh, all the time. So it's going to be Jake Wetzel, Andy Crosby, me, and uh, James sure. Tompkins.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's it. a really a really cool um, four. And yeah, James Tompkins is the the king of sweep, so he was going to be great in your in your four. Yeah. He's won a, a world championship medal in every sweep or event, including cox pair and cox four as well. So okay. he's got uh, in, he's got he's got all the medals and, uh, in the sweep events. Yeah, um,
3: no, he's had an incredible career for sure. And uh, yes, no offense to all the wonderful athletes out there. That would be a, a great time to row with too. But it's also got to be a bit about the party afterwards too. I got to a idea. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, the,
2: the, the funny thing with this question is when when someone picks like a, a, a duo that is so well known together, like maybe the New Zealand pair or the Sienkiewicz brothers, we yeah. always we always ask back, you know, what what about the other one? Why why is he on the bench?
3: Right, right, yeah. That's a, that's a tough to split those guys up, right? <laughs> oh, so so,
1: so the next question is, and I'm, this is going to be interesting because you're going to have uh, you got a lot of races to to choose from. Is what's your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again?
3: Uh. Okay, well, I don't, I don't actually watch too many races over and over again, so I don't have a lot to choose from. But um, I guess, I mean, ideally, I would like to pick one that I wasn't actually in. Like, there's some been stellar races yeah. over the years, but I think, uh, you know, back in my day, I'm, I'm so old now that you know, there's not a lot of coverage of, of races back in the day, right? So I didn't, you know, see, I wasn't on YouTube back in the day; I didn't exist, right? So we weren't able to have <laughs> access to a lot of these races, which is. The irony of being, yes, one of your older interviewees here, so uh, I didn't have the benefit of poring over old world championships because we literally didn't have access to them. So growing up through my rowing career, I didn't actually watch a lot of uh, non-live rowing, right? So... Anyway, the role what I've watched the most is probably my race from '93. If I had to, you know, pick one race that I actually have access to, only because I do have the the, the VHS tape <laughs> of it <laughs> that I slide into my VCR. that's how old I am. So anyway, that's I do cool. have it converted to digital, so I have that race on. But I'll, you know, I've watched that occasionally, but nothing lately, obviously. But uh, I don't generally pour over races too much, and. Uh, but if I have to answer your question accurately, that's the one I've probably watched the most, which is not saying a lot because it's probably been like three times. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's amazing is um, you you actually can
2: find on YouTube these days. You can actually find really some really cool races from um, from back in the day. Um, I recently, ugh, I'm just trying to remember the the um, the race I watched. It was from it was uh, Perti Karpinen raced. Uh, uh, Colby, the German scholar, um oh, What Olympics was it in? I, I watched it the other day, but it was something like nineteen um, sixty-eight or around there. And it was it was amazing race to watch. And I was just I don't know, after watching it, I was just like, I can't believe that I, I just watched this race on, on YouTube. But it is it's pretty cool what uh, what races you can
3: get out there. Yeah, I guess people do post some cool old uh, archival footage of yeah, Perry Carpenter and, and Michael Colby. They were they were classic duelers back in the yeah. day. And- they were yeah, right up awesome. until I started rowing, actually. So they were still rowing back in '88, I think. So yeah, there's uh, something about
2: so there a lot of single scholars that have some serious longevity um, on on their careers.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. the yeah. next uh, the next question is: um, if you were in charge at world rowing, what would you change? This is going to be difficult because you, uh, as you say, you, you haven't been in the in the sport for quite a while.
3: Yeah. Well. Um, I'm not an overly political uh, animal, so I'm not going to get into those sorts of things or boat classes or uh, race distances, but um, I'll just share a uh, creative uh, option that I always thought would be cool back when I was rowing was, I mean, I always thought there was difficulty with, you know, getting crowds to watch rowing, right? It's kind of a difficult sport to watch live. You can hang out at the last hundred meters of the race and watch people finish, but you don't really see the rest of it unless you've got a TV monitor. So, um, I always thought, you know, back in the day, they used to have horse-drawn carriages following the races along, right? Kind of like the bicycles do, I guess, or did up until recently, uh, following the races as they go, but most people don't have access to that. So um, so my idea back in the day was always we'd row maybe 1,500 meters on a regular course, and then it would go into an enclosure, like some kind of building, stadium type atmosphere like almost like a marathoner coming into the stadium in the last uh, 400 meters and having the crowd there so so people would row into this like enclosure like six lane obviously just keep on going and the last 500 would be in a packed stadium right so you'd have flat water huge crowds and then just when you're feeling like you're about to die you'd have this uh, levity with the, with the with the crowds cheering at the last part of the race so and then you could convert that into like five hundred meter sprint venues and whatnot, so that was it might be hard to build, but that uh that would be cool to do
1: yeah I'll flip that would be so awesome and it's actually uh, if you watch races from the london olympics it's it's almost that's probably yeah. like the london closest you're going to get to to that idea where Le uh, London had grandstands on both sides of the of the course and almost for five hundred meters and they were packed packed with people yeah. um, and nice. people that have yeah. raced there like they that's one of the things that they spoke about so much is like how much noise and how how crazy it was how much of a different experience it was to to race in into this like completely packed um part of the race with so much noise
3: yeah and it might uh might might be sensory overload for the rowers of course you probably hear just this muffled craziness in the last five we <laughs> tune it all out anyway but uh I just remember watching the 93 crew too. You look at the video and there's probably like 50 bikes riding along the side of the course and looks (laughs) like the Tour de France on the background, right? So that's a good perspective, but that's only for coaches, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and uh, if I can sneak another cheeky recommendation to watching a race, the London 2012 Olympics, go watch the lightweight four. That's a banger race. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's a good one. Um, Nice, Jake. Yeah. So the... The next question. This is this is one that everyone wants to hear. If um, I know they they used to do two and a half thousand meter tests. As Zeno told us his one. But what's did you ever pull a two k pb? And if so, please can you share? Uh,
3: yes, we did. Yes, we did do. 2500s in the early days, and interestingly, we also did 20 minute tests instead of 6k tests, which was kind of crazy. And the in the I think most of my career, we didn't switch to 6ks till recently. Uh, anyway, so um, (coughs) my 2000 meter race, or or, yeah, well, both my my, my best two maybe I don't don't remember my 2500 to be honest with you, but my my best 2k was 542.6. Jeez, that's That's
1: (laughs) not messing around.
3: Arguing what yeah, I was uh, yeah, I was okay on the erg back in the day. Yeah,
1: yeah, that yeah, explains
3: I, I, I the. Would definitely be okay today as
2: well with a 5.42, <laughs> That's for sure.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gone down. What's the world record? I just noticed the other day was five thirty-five.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so
1: yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you you I raced mean, not
3: not a lot, but that, an extra seven seconds is a ton at that at that at that level, right? Yeah, so, but you. Yeah, I think I think Rob Waddell had the world world the yeah. world best for the time that I was rowing.
1: Yeah, because Rob Waddell got it. I think in in 2000 he got it, uh, and then he broke it again in 2010, and then it stood for another eight years. I think Josh Dunkley Smith I think got it in 2018 I think. And oh, wow, okay, and it's and he only took it down by like one second I think, or or just around there. So it's, <laughs> there's there's not a lot of margin in there in the ergo anymore and also like for Duncan Smith to to get the world record he had to take a year off rowing and just focus on pulling the ergo so i think it's, it's, oh, become its I, okay it's become its own beast completely
3: a specialist rower yeah i guess well lots yeah. of people are erging now and all the, all the crossfitters out there and everything are getting yeah. on it so who knows? Maybe someone will beat that uh, pretty soon. But uh, yeah, the erg was always uh, not a high priority in our training programs. But um, we every now and again we'd have to we taper for <laughs> a big push, just more for ranking among start group than anything else.
2: So, yeah, as a rower, I'll be deeply upset if a CrossFitter
3: <laughs> punishes
2: the world record.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true oh. enough. True enough. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll leave it to uh, Ollie to be the next one. He looks like he has potential.
1: Yeah he, yeah, he could he could get really close, I think. Um so the last yeah. question is if you could choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, uh, what would it be and why? Uh
3: so being the glutton for punishment that I am, um I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the only sport that's uh arguably tougher than rowing when it comes to uh lactic acid and VO2 Max is uh cross country skiing. So I've I've always loved that sport. I do it quite a bit now just for fun, but uh, yeah, full respect for those athletes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's some rowing parallels, but uh, longer events, and uh, it's a pretty cool sport, and, and equally under the radar to rowing, so I, I, I want to make sure I don't make any money in any sports that I do, so, <laughs> so I'll <laughs> pick something like that. That's really funny, because uh, I think
1: there's, there's two kinds of people. There's the, the group that wants to go and do something that's not physical and not taxing at all, and then there's the the group that's like, cool. I'll, I I'm good at rowing. And I'm good at hurting myself. So what else can I can I hurt myself in? And uh, push yeah, myself. I, yeah. <laughs> I
3: guess I'm I'm in that camp. I guess yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think uh, be-
1: uh, obviously you have access to to skiing and uh, and all the winter sports. Whereas from South Africa, yeah, we we yeah. are very far removed from the Winter Olympics.
3: Yes, so, I guess uh, you are. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're a bit of a winter country up here. So yes, I should be playing hockey and skiing all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So thanks Derek. That actually brings us to, uh, you know, the end of the interview for us. We've had a blast chatting to you and, um, yeah, definitely shared some really cool insights. Um, just, uh, just before we wrap things up completely, um, we like to just give our guests a bit of time to, uh, just let our listeners know uh, what they 're up to, and if you want to share anything that you 're doing yeah. or where people can find you, you can do so now
3: oh, okay thanks um yeah no no books to promote uh, no movies i 'm good there, but uh, <laughs> um, I just want to thank you guys uh, actually uh Jake and Lawrence. you guys are I really appreciate this uh, interview and um, the the platform with the, the row show is super cool so it's enabled me to get a little bit of a walk down memory lane. So, um, thank you guys for all the effort you do to put this together. It's awesome. And, uh, it's a kind of unique forum for getting some cool insight into the behind the scenes of athletes. So the interviews I've listened to on your, on your podcast have been super cool. And, uh, like I said, taking me back a little bit too. So thank you for that. And, uh, as far as I go, um, yeah, I'm just, you know, living in Vancouver here. I'm a chiropractor full time. And, um, and uh, I'm not a big Facebook, Instagram guy, so <laughs> you can't contact me. Great. But, uh, there, I can be found on LinkedIn. That's about it. Yeah. So actually,
1: the the oh, only thing awesome. that we that we missed that I wanted to to add in, because obviously being a chiropractor and uh, being involved in the the sport of rowing, we have so many back issues and and so many um, problems around the back. and And is there anything for for young rowers that uh, that you would suggest to? To just help protect their backs, or you know, or, or give themselves a, a better chance at, uh, at keeping their back strong for for a long career.
3: Mm, yeah, no, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I do work with a lot of the rowers at university level at UBC here, and not a national program. but We had a chiropractor always throughout our career, and um, I honestly credit his work with a lot of my success, just keeping the body. Not so much like treating issues but uh, good at that too but also just uh, preventing issues right and um, I think chiropractors play a huge role in, in promoting optimization of your health and optimization of your function so you're able to race at the highest level and train without getting injured is kind of the way I look at it so it's more of a, a wellness approach and a preventative approach and really optimizing your nerve function through the spine so that's kind of my, uh, my direction of that and uh, I credit a lot of that to my career I had very few injuries and Back held up and still does, thankfully, knock on wood. So um, I think they play a great role in uh, just doing that. And then uh, so keeping that aligned for any new up and coming athlete and current athlete, I think it's a huge um, part of the overall picture of uh of um you know when it comes to outside the rowing uh arena stretching and strengthening and core work obviously is important but uh just maintaining spinal alignment and your hips being level and your si joints moving properly all these things play into the uh, an ideal rowing stroke and preventing injury so i'd say that's the biggest thing and then uh and not coming up too quickly is the other thing i see a lot of right these athletes that get sort of um yeah into the sport quite quickly from another sport and they end up rowing two three times a day and in year one which is like breaks a lot of people right so if they get sort of identified through talent id camps from some other sport and oh, you make a great rower and all of a sudden they're training too hard too quickly and then they just get injured and that's the end of it right so that's pretty sad to see and i think people need to be nurtured along a little slowly and whether that's through the juniors and it so sort of naturally happens that way, or um, just starting at university like I did, and you're rowing once a day for two years basically, and all of the you know your body's able to adapt to the rowing stroke and the stresses of that slowly instead of uh, over overdoing it.
1: Yeah, that's a really good, uh, really good um, advice, I think, for, for the listeners. That's very cool. And yeah, just a huge thanks for, for coming on the show and, and sharing your, your stories and your journey. It's been uh, such a cool chat, and it's going to be such a good episode when we put yeah. it up.
2: Uh, it's going to be another one in a really, really good one:
3: Okay, well, that's great. Thank you guys so much. I really honestly appreciate it so much, and uh, good luck to you guys. Cool, so
1: that's a wrap for another episode of the Row show, Derek Porter. What a legend, what an absolute animal, and yeah some really good lessons out there. uh what are your big takeaways there Jake
2: yeah I think um it's uh it's just interesting to to talk to someone that's had um success in in different disciplines. We've had a couple of guys on the show that kind of uh, reminding me a little bit about the Sinkovich brothers and their ability to move across disciplines, but I think you know, just chatting to Derek and get a feel for, you know, how he managed as an athlete to go from the two different cl- classes was, was uh, really interesting. And, you know, just chatting about some awesome racing because, you know, at the time in the Skull in the 90s, I was a really packed, uh, packed um, event. And also the race in 1992 was awesome to chat about. Just super happy that we got another, another person from this era.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's so interesting to to hear you know the 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 Spracklin kind of legacy starting to really take shape back then, and how it has uh, translated over the years into that uh, that 2008 and 2012 campaign for Canada. So yeah, really really cool. And thanks so much for tuning in and listening, guys. Uh, we got some other. We've got one more old-school athlete coming up uh, in our next episode. I'm sure you guys, uh, it's a real treat and a really, really interesting uh, chat. But for now, that's all from us. And, yeah, keep safe. Ciao.
2: Yeah, guys, thanks a lot. And don't forget to support our show. Go share it and engage with us on Instagram. Send us any messages. And besides that, cheers, guys. Have a good weekend.
1: yeah i mean uh we we recently chatted to, to Zeno, and uh he was quite funny right. uh, talking about that right. I, I can hear you jake oh should
3: i should talk I some more <laughs> no sorry it,
2: no, no, no sorry that we, was you might have you know, it was all me
1: it was i was still here it was i, I had my mic on mute so okay uh, a, a rookie error rookie error